everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelance and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. If I had to list all of the items our guest tonight has accomplished in the tennis and sports industry, it would take up the entire episode. But to just name a few, this guest was the first sports agent in professional tennis representing players such as Arthur Ashe, Stan Smith, Jimmy Connors, and Yvonne Lendl. He was the founder of ProServe, one of the first sports marketing firms established in 1970. He co-founded the ATP in 1972 with Jack Kramer and Cliff Drysdale. He's an author, a former Davis Cup player and Davis Cup captain, and was the co-founder of the Leg Mason Tournament held in Washington, D.C. And like my co-host, this guest was elected to the Tennis Hall of Fame in 2009. Please welcome to the pod, Mr. Donald Dell. Donald, thank you for uh, spending time and talking to us about some of your incredible experiences in the uh, tennis industry. Thank you, David. Formerly, I might have been a pretty good guy, <laughs> but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> no, I think you're still a, you're, you're still a damn good guy to, to us, and we're so looking forward to it. I, I, I think um, we're going to get into a ton of, of what you've done and all the amazing accomplishments um, throughout not only the tennis industry, but the sports uh, sports business industry as well. But to, to, to let us first start off with, you know, Novak and what he was trying to accomplish um, just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you, you, you saw Rod Laver do it back in 1969. Steve and I have talked about this um, several times. We want to hear your thoughts. Um, just the journey Novak was on, and did you feel like when he, when, when he finally made it to Sunday, all the hard work had been done and he was going to win that match, or did you feel like, whoa, he finally made it, the moment is right here in his face, and it, it, it may have, the, the pressure may have been too much. I think two things. I think, first of all, if all the players in the game were playing the very best they could at the same time, Djokovic is 20% better than the field. I really believe he's the best player in the world day in and day out on a, a combination of all surfaces. What happened that particular day, which is what makes uh, sports great, I think he just, the stress and the pressure was building all week. You can't imagine unless you're out there playing what it's like every time to say, well, only three more matches and you're going to be world champion. You know, you won the grand slam. Nobody's done it since 69. And that kept building. And suddenly he starts out in, in the finals and Medvedev is certainly two or three in the world, but he doesn't miss a ball. You don't get any cheap errors from him. So you have to go out and really beat him. Uh, on every rally, you got to find a way to beat him on a, on a slow cement court where all the stress and all the pressure is on you. And the match started with most of the fans for Medvedev to make it a good match. And then he won the first set and slowly the crowd switched and then really wanted to cheer on Djokovic. But by that time, he's almost down two sets to love. He's lost a little bit of his confidence and he's sitting there thinking to himself, I've spent 34 years, 18 of year, 18 years playing pro tennis since he was 16. And suddenly my dream is going out the window. And it, I think it's just a combination of so many things hit him stress wise. And he was playing against a human backboard. I mean, you got to give Medvedev tremendous credit because he serves so damn well. You know, he didn't break serve until 5-2 in the third set. The match is virtually over at that time. He had two break, two break of serve, 
uh, when Medvedev was serving at 5-1. So he broke him once, but he had to broke him twice to get back even. And the mountain was just too high to climb, in my opinion, at that stage, because of the confidence that switches in the match to Medvedev. Suddenly he's thinking, I'm going to win this match. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, Steve, you have anything on that? I mean, you and I have discussed this, you know, a, a couple of times. I think it's really oh, well said, a good summation. I really do. And I, I, I only area I would just disagree. I, I, who am I to disagree with Donald about anything? I would only have a slight disagreement. I felt that the crowd was really for Novak pretty much all the way through. Uh, I, we got a big ovation when he walked on the court. I felt they want, they really wanted, but they also at the same time, they were so appreciative of Medvedev's performance. So they weren't an unfair crowd, but I felt like they, they had finally come round after starting off the tournament being giving a, a Djokovic a hard time in the first few rounds, not terribly sympathetic to him, but it really grew over the fortnight. And by the time he got to the final, I felt they were with him. But Donald is absolutely right that they, they also cheered Medvedev on because they appreciated great play. And they wanted a good match. The crowd always yeah. likes the battle. They don't want a one-sided yeah. match. No, Steve, right. I think, you know, if you listen to Djokovic's press conference afterwards, yeah, he said he he said he found what he never had, which was crowd support, and that that meant more to him than winning. Right. Now, I I question yeah. that, but he certainly handled it great. I mean, certainly he wanted to win more than anything. He related and said, but the crowd support throughout the match made me prouder than winning the the match. Yeah, he uh, did. If say you want to take him at his word, that's what he yeah. said. Yeah, absolutely. No, I do. I do take him at his word, and I was struck by that too. But I also think, Donald, that. It, you, you touched on something else important that, yes, everybody talks about Novak's and the histrionics and smashing rackets and the, some volatility, but they don't give him nearly the credit, in my view, that he deserves for the way that he loses. This was not an unusual case to me. Of, he goes up to the opponent. He hugs him. He talks to him. He doesn't just give him a cursory handshake. And then in the press conferences, he's invariably full of praise for what they have done while still being self-critical. And I, I frankly think on that count, he actually does better than either Federer or Nadal at, at acknowledging the opponent and, and being a good sport a, after, that, after the match is over. Well, the simple fact is uh, that really, he, I think he's a great speaker. If you heard his match, his speech after Wimbledon uh, yeah. about the whole summary of the sport and the, and the game and the event and the championship. It was a miraculous speech. And so yeah. I think he's a great thinker and I think he's a great player and I think he's a great speech maker. I really do think he's articulate. No doubt about it. All right. Enough about Novak. We want to hear you're our guest. We want to hear about you. So um, <laughs> if you don't mind, why don't you kind of give us a background on, uh, you know, where did you grow up? How did you get started in this game? How did you get interested in this game? And then we'll get into um, all the extraordinary accomplishments that, that, that you've done. Well, David, I was very lucky. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I lived right across the street, literally 50 yards from a clay court tennis club called the Edgemore Club, which is a swimming and tennis club, small, seven courts, a swimming pool, and the neighborhood is called the Edgemore area. And uh, it's not a golf club. Everybody uh, plays tennis there. And it became, oh, and has been over time, the number one tennis club in Washington because it's very popular. And they have a resolution in their board that if, first of all, if you live in Edgemore, you can get in the club right away. But if you're ranked in the top 20 or 30 in the city, 
as a tennis player, you can get right into the club. So conversely, all the best players play there. And I was a kid, six years old. My mother, you know, took me across the street and hit some balls with me. And I used to play against the backboard by, by the hour. And then I started playing against the different club members. Uh, and as I got to be eight and 10 and, and started playing better, the membership of the Edgemore Club really encouraged me a great deal and helped me learn to play. And as I got better, when I was 12, I was 13. When I was 13 years old, I was number three in the United States in the 15 and under. So I was a very good player, very young. And then all I would go over there. I might play four of the different men during the day. I, in the summer, I might play six or eight hours when I was a kid growing up. And so that's how I really got started. It was, it was a wonderful experience. But I remember I lived 50 yards from that club right yeah. across the street uh, in Washington. It's, a, it's in Bethesda, Maryland, after a suburb of Washington. Oh, super cool. Super convenient, too. You didn't have to worry about getting a ride over there. I mean, literally walking distance. So definitely yeah. plays a plays a part in it. Um, you, you, Steve and I just recorded a, a, our Labor Cup recap. Um, we released it and we talked a little bit about how Davis Cup is getting lost in the shuffle a little bit, unfortunately, with a number of these team events and the restructuring. And I know I, I want to talk. I want to hear about your experience, not only um playing it but also coaching it because i believe you won the cup your teams won the cup in 68 and 69 right yeah i, I we did um the, the american team had lost the davis cup uh five years in a row against some bad teams ecuador peru a lot of different uh, south american teams on on clay and we just had a very bad record when they asked me to be the captain in 1968 and before i i was working in washington uh, i'd been a lawyer for a short two years. I retired in 66. The last match I played on competitive tournaments was at Fort Worth, Texas in September against a little known but great server named Arthur Ashe. And he beat me four and six. And I was out of the tournament. And I thought, you know, it's time to go back. I'd gone to law school uh, after being at Yale. And then I went to Virginia Law School. And I thought, you know, I'm never going to be the best player. There's no money in the sport. So I went back and, and uh, took a job with a big law firm in Washington, Hogan and Hartson. And then about two years later, I started working with Sergeant Shriver uh, as his special assistant at OEO in the Peace Corps. And suddenly out of the blue, Bob Keller called me and asked me if I'd be Davis Cup captain. I was 29 years old. And uh, before I took the job, because I loved working with Shriver, I didn't really want to give that up. But we had to play in that year in 68, six countries to get to the final round to play the Australians. And then if we won that in 69, we played in the challenge round where we were the defending champion. We only had to play one match. So I went to Arthur Ashe and stands uh, really uh, to Charlie Passarell, who in 67 was number one in, uh, in the United States. He was the number one player. And I went to Charlie and his roommate, Arthur Ashe at, Stan at uh, UCLA, excuse me. And I said to both of them, look, if I want to give up my job to become the Davis Cup captain, I wasn't married. I was going to travel with the team. We had six matches for over about a four and a half month, five month period. I said, I don't want to do that unless you guys are really going to make this a mission that to win it back after five years and all the bad press American tennis has gotten. Uh, if you'll give me a commitment, I'll do it. So I worked. Remember, I was the youngest captain at 29 ever picked. So I had a good relationship with these players and they all committed to spend the whole year, uh, trying to win the Davis cup. The first thing I did as captain, 
very politely, I called Pancho Gonzalez, who had been the coach of the team for about four years. And I said, Pancho, I'd really appreciate it if you would say you're unavailable this year as the coach. I loved Pancho. I, I said, I don't want to in any way fire you or I just want you to say, would you mind? I want to pick a really young coach. And he was great about it. He was a, he was a teaching pro out in Las Vegas at the, the hotel there. And I and he said, no, no, if that's what you want, I, I, I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm out of it. That's fine. I mean, he didn't really care. He was a pro and and he was playing the tour with Kramer and and, and Hode and Rosewall and these other players. And so I then hired uh, Dennis Ralston, who was 26 years old at the time, to be my coach. And he was sensational. And so Dennis. Dennis ran the team and I ran the policies and the decisions and the politics of the whole thing. And we were a great team and he was a wonderful, wonderful friend. And uh, that really got us started. And when we, we, when we won the Davis cup uh, in Australia and Adelaide, uh, Steve, we beat uh, Harry Hopman in his last great match yeah. uh, in 68. Now in yep. fairness to the Australians, there was a fight going on between the federations to control the players. And some of the best Australians couldn't play Davis Cup unless they registered with their federation. And Laver and, and Hode and Rosewall and those guys and Emerson, they weren't going to say they've been pros for six or seven years. The game went open in 68. So they could play Wimbledon in the U.S. Open for prize money. So they all said, well, we're not going to do that. So the Australians didn't have the strongest team they've had in the past. And we won that match four to one. And then in 69, we defended uh, against the Romanians who had a very strong team, Tyriac uh, and Ilya Nastasi. Ilya Nastasi could beat anybody at a given day on any court. And we survived that uh, very strongly and, and won that match in the challenge round five zero. So, and then that, that uh, December of 69, I decided to retire as the captain. Uh, I'm the only one that, that never lost because the captain stayed too long and I wanted to get in and get out and do something else. And that's when I decided to uh, think about representing uh, tennis players. Arthur said to me, I took Arthur, Steve, if you can believe it, I took Arthur to Mark McCormick, the head of IMG, four times, yeah, four times to, to go with him. And, uh, and we were after the fourth breakfast, we were driving down the east side of uh, New York City and Arthur turned to me in a taxi cab and said, why don't you do it? And I said, do what? He said, why don't you manage me and, and represent me? You're a lawyer. And you, you know, we could start a business. And I said, Arthur, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go back to my law firm in, in Washington, Hogan. I want to be a trial lawyer. I want to be the next Clarence Darrow. And he said, well, you know, if you did so, if you did it, I think Stan would join us, uh, Stan Smith. And the three of us, we could have a business and be kind of fun. So I went back to Hogan Arts and asked the, the, the chief senior partner, Lester Cohen, what he thought of the idea of managing athletes, particularly tennis players. He said, it's a great idea. The sport's going open. It's gone public. There's going to be big money. Uh, we'll give you the fifth floor. We'll give you tax attorneys. We'll give you accountants. And then I said, what would be the name of the firm? He said, Hogan and Hartson. I said, well, let me think about it. And I did for about two or three weeks. And then I decided, uh, and I called him. And I opened the law office of the Donald Dell, which was me and one secretary. And my two clients were Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith. So I was very lucky and it's very much timing. Donald, I want to go back, make you go back for just a second, if you don't mind, because sure. I, 
You know, David, Donald's kind of modest about this, but I there's a couple of things that stand out to me uh, about his Davis Cup captaincy that he didn't tell you. Yes, he was young. Yes, he was 29. He had some he had to navigate some difficult territory because he was he was working. He was closer to Arthur and to Charlie Passarell and to Stan Smith and Bob Lutz. But his number two singles player that year was Clark Gravener. And, and he didn't have the same relationship personally with Clark that he did with the others. But to me, it was, an, it was a testament to Donald's leadership that Gravener, who had helped, had played very well and was the number two man behind Arthur and had been in the semis of Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, lost to Arthur in the semifinals of the Open. And there was a book written about that called Levels of the Game by John McPhee. But in any case, Clark, in the fall, they went when they were getting ready to play in Australia and they're playing some events over there, he was not playing well and and there was questions about tanking a doubles match and and Donald I'll let him fill in the gaps here but Donald was ready to send him home uh, and throw him off the team and Clark kind of the the story that Donald's told me and I think I've heard this from both sides Clark kind of pleaded with him you can't do that my father my father will kill me you just cannot do that and he allowed Grabner to play challenge matches against the others. Arthur's position was cemented. Everybody knew he was number one. The question was who's going to be two. But he played the others. He played Smith. He played Passerelli. He played it, beat them all, and earned his position back. And Gravener ended up actually being one of the heroes over there because he won both of his matches. Arthur lost on the last day. It was We'd already clinched it. But still, what I'm saying with that story is that that, to me, proved why Donald was one of the great Davis Cup captains we've had because of the leadership and because of the fundamental fairness in allowing somebody that maybe he didn't get along with as well as some of the others to, to, to a totally fair shape because Gravener had played so well all year uh, until that home stretch in Australia. And now he, you know, he'd gone off and he wasn't competing well, but he went out in those practice matches and earned it back. And that to me, uh, was a very that that said a lot about Donald as a captain, and I followed all that very closely as a 16-year-old. But it, I was really impressed with how Donald handled what, what could have been a difficult situation, and in the end, and I and Donald, you remember the story you told me, a great story where Donald David went out for a run with Charlie Passarell. They're in the rain. They stop under a tree. Let, let me say, stop right there, Steve Bruin. This was the hardest thing I ever had to do that whole year of Davis Cup because Charlie Passarell was my dearest friend on the team because I knew him the best. And we had the match coming up. The draw was being made in an hour. And I say to Ash, excuse me, I say to Clark, uh, you, you all go out and practice. Charlie lets you and I go for a run. And we're running around that big field in Adelaide. And Charlie, suddenly it starts raining like crazy, a flood. And we jump under two trees. And Charlie looks at me and says, Donald, what the hell are we doing out here running right now? He says, you're going to pick Gravener and drop me under the rules. We could only have a four man team in those days to play. And he said, and Charlie was the fourth man on the team. He said, you're going to pick Gravener and drop me from the team, aren't you? And I, I honestly, I didn't almost know how to say, I said, yes, Charlie, I am. And he said, uh, well, I understand. And I was almost uh, in tears, but. I said, Charlie, you have to understand one thing. I've given myself to this for a whole year. And all I care about is winning. And Gravener has been beating everybody. We used to play, uh, Dennis Ralston was very strong on this. We used to give two weeks of practice and 
training to these matches, which you can't do now with the world schedule. Davis Cup uh, has really dropped off the scene. But back in 68 and 69, it was like the Ryder Cup. It was very, very important to different countries, home and home away. And I just felt so strongly that Graydon was beating these other players in our practice matches. And we were playing Steve in some places, three out of five set matches. Yeah. And so I said to Charlie, you know, Graydon playing the best. Arthur's been shaky, hasn't played that well. And he lost uh, the, the match to Bowery down there, Bill Bowery, yeah. as you mentioned. Yeah. And so I, it was a very tough call. And, uh, and Charlie took it great, but it was really, uh, a terrible moment when he looked at me under that tree and it was raining. And uh, I said, no, that's what I want to do. The draw is going to be in an hour. Uh, he said, okay. If that, and Charlie was the best, he's the best in, in the game as a human being. And uh, so that's how we did it. And we got lucky. Gravener played a hell of a two matches. He won both singles and he was the hero of the, of that particular tie. And uh, I, I give him full credit for it. He, he was, a, he was a difficult guy. He, he did throw a doubles match. I thought tanked it in uh, Australia with Charlie as his partner. And that made me mad as hell. So I wanted to send him home and, and he pleaded with me not to Steve told the story. It's accurate. Uh, but anyway, to his credit, he really worked his butt off and he deserved to play and he won. And we, won. we have to, now you have to tell the story to David and our listeners We're going to the white house in January of 69, he brings all these guys to the White House that the team's invited to meet Nixon, who's just been elected. And 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 I want Donald to explain that some of the, his team members didn't want to necessarily go along with the dress code. And one member didn't want to get his hair cut. I think that was Bob Lutz. Tell the story, Donald, of how you. Well, what to- happened? What happened yeah. was we had, we had come back after we won the Davis Cup. Uh, we were coming back in six, late. We won it in December of 68. We went through Vietnam and did a five-day tour there uh, with Army, went to hospitals, to the Army, and so forth. And then we went to Hawaii uh, and got a little rest, and we played some exhibitions at Punahou School and some other places in in Hawaii for a couple of days. And then we took an all-night flight uh, back to D.C., and we arrived the morning to be in the White House for lunch with uh, President Nixon. And uh, we got in literally like 6 a.m. in the morning, and Bob Kelleher, the president who had appointed me, was uh, and he and is a ver- was a very strong Republican, was on the plane with us. And when we when we landed at the airport, we were getting the bags. And Bob came over to me and said, "My God, doll, you can't take this team to the White House. They're, you know, they're all scraggly and they're all in different clothes." I said, "Wait, Bob, we're going to go to a hotel. We're going to rest. We're going to change clothes. Just stay out of it. Let, let me handle them." So we go to the hotel, and uh, Lutz says. I'm not, I'm not, I said, Bob, you got to cut your hair. He hadn't cut his hair in weeks. And I said, you got to cut your hair. And he said, no, I'm not cutting my hair. I'm not going to do that. So well, then you're not going uh, to the, the press conference or the lunch. You take and take a pic. Now Lutz was one of the younger players. So then I turned to Charlie and Charlie said, I'm not wearing a coat and tie. Don. I don't wear a coat and tie. I said, Charlie, let me explain something to you. You and Arthur are in the army and your service orders are written to me uh, as the captain of the team. You can do whatever you want. If you don't want to, if you don't want to wear a coat and tie, I understand, but there's going to be a press conference and you're not going to be there. And they're going to ask me why you're not there. And I'm going to tell them because you didn't want to attend the president and put on a tie. And I don't know what's going to happen to those army orders. And he said, where where do I get a white shirt? Damn it. And so we solved those two problems. And Bob Keller 
was quickly astounded and amazed that we, we rejuvenated everybody. And we went to lunch. And uh, Steve, you may not know this, but there were two things that happened to that lunch that were remarkable. We went in and had lunch with the president. And he honestly did not know much about tennis. And they had warned me that ahead of time and said, would you sit down at the end of the table and, you know, work the players in and carry the conversation? Bob Kelleher was at the other end from the president. I was sitting to the right of him. And we were there, I would say, for probably about 90 minutes. There was not one phone call, interruption, or anything for 90, for, for 90 minutes. And when we walked out the door, outside the door, there were about eight or 10 people lined up waiting to ask the president or tell the president certain things. I have no idea what they were, but I will never forget how isolated and insulated we were with only people serving lunch. And that stunned me. And then secondly, when we went to leave the White House, we got some gifts from the White House. And as we left, the, the irony of it was the gifts were four White House golf balls for each player. <laughs> and that always struck me as kind of unusual that they gave us golf balls to a Davis Cup tennis team. But President Nixon could not have been more hospitable, more ingratiating. Gracious. I mean, and it was remarkable because we were never in, 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 you know, and nobody bothered us for an hour and a half. And that Amazing. always surprised me. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one quick more story, uh, Steve. Yeah. The next, the next year when we beat Romania in Cleveland, Jan Tyriak was on that team. And what is little known is that he was defaulted in the fifth match. We were four up and he wouldn't come out. At about 4.30 in Cleveland, he was mad because they were getting beat. And he said to the referee, if you can picture this, the referee of the match was Philippe Chatrier, the oh. president of the French Federation. Yeah. And so I'm over talking to Stan Smith, who's playing the match. He's up two sets to one. And Tyriac won't come out. And so I guess uh, Philippe warns him. Suddenly, Philippe puts on a, a raincoat, walks over to him and says, Donald, the match is over. And I'm talking to Smith on the changeover. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I've just defaulted to Tyriac. He's told me he's not going to play. So the next morning, I mean, think of timing and life. The next morning, I get a phone call, put the Romanians on the private charter. We're all flying to Washington. We're going to go to the White House and meet President Nixon a second time in the Rose Garden. So I get on the plane and we're flying into Cle from Cleveland to Washington. And Tyriac comes up to me. Now, this story I want told because Tyriac will deny it. And he looks at me and he says, Donald, you cannot tell the prime minister or the president that I was that I was defaulted. Because what happened was the prime minister of Romania was there that day. Ceausescu, who was assassinated with his wife a few a months later. And that's why they had called me in the State Department and said, make sure that Romanians are on the team with you, on the plane with you, excuse me, and come in together. So Tyriac's on the plane. He knew that. And he said, I'll never get out of the country again if you tell them that I was defaulted. I said, well, I'd like you to stay in your country forever. I was kidding <laughs> and needling you. He turned white on the airplane. We get there to the Rose Garden and Alastair Martin was the president that year of the USTA. Bob Keller heard had had his two-year term. 
Alistair was president and he was a very shy, introverted type of person. So he says to me, Donald, I want you to walk down with the president and, Chesky, and the prime minister of Romania introducing the players. Say a couple of words about each one of them. So we start with the American team in the Rose Garden and the prime minister of Romania standing there with Nixon and myself. We go down the list of people and finally we get to the Romanians. And of course, Nastasi's raving his arms and laughing. We get to Tyriac and I'm saying a word about each one. And I said to the prime minister, Mr. Prime Minister, Jan Tyriac, as you may know, was a great ice hockey hero in Romania, one of the great ones. And the he, prime minister sort of nodded. Now remember, prime ministers, and it's an iron, it's an iron curtain country in those days. That's what the revolution was about later that assassinated him. And so I turned to him, I said, but he's a great sportsman, a tremendous fighter in tennis, and really makes the country proud of you. <laughs> and Tyriac shakes his hand. And later that day, I said, Tyriac, you owe me for life. Not for now, but for life. He always denies that story. But those that were standing in that line know exactly what I said. Donald, just quick, quickly, Donald, because you've, you've mentioned so much about Nixon. But I think just so the listeners can understand, talk about your friendship with Bobby Kennedy, working for Robert Kennedy, the assassination, and how that might have changed your life because you might have gone into politics yourself. Well, it was funny in 68 when I was working for Sergeant Shriver, uh, I had met Bobby out at uh, uh, Hickory Hill. They lived across the river in Virginia. And again, I, as I say, I wasn't married in those days and I was a lawyer at Hogan and Hartson. I was playing on the weekends with Bobby and Ethel. And I tried to help Bobby with his backhand and get to know him. And suddenly in 66, I was asked to maybe do a few uh, stops as an advance man for Bobby. Uh, in an off-year election. He wasn't running in 68. At the very latest in March, he decided to run. And uh, uh, another lawyer in Washington named, um, uh, the lawyer in Washington, John Nolan, who was his scheduler and who would have, I, in my judgment, he was the head of a big law firm, Steptoe and Johnson in Washington. I think John would have been attorney general had uh, Bobby lived and won. And so I was asked to take over five states for Bobby Kennedy in 68. Um, they were Oregon, uh, California, West Virginia, uh, uh, and uh, the, the District of Columbia. And we, so I ran five states for him with what's called the lead advance. And I had people who were advancing in each state for me. And uh, in California, uh, I took him into Watts and I took Arthur and Stan on the back end of a train the day before the uh, primary election in Los Angeles and California. He won that. And uh, one of my spot, one of my stops was the ambassador hotel where he was assassinated. And, uh, and I really, I had planned to go into politics. I, if Bobby had won, uh, he and I had talked about, uh, I'd work in his uh, staff in the white house, maybe for two or four years, he'd come out, do one or two dinners in uh, Bethesda and raise money for me to run for Congress. Um, and that's what I was least thinking about if I'd gone to work in the White House. I don't think I would have ever uh, run or started pro-serve uh, and if he had won. And of course he was assassinated and uh, that just sort of changed my whole, uh, I was pretty uh, terribly disappointed and crushed when that happened and uh, decided that I wanted to really spend time trying to build a company. And that's when I started pro-serve well, actually, it was a law firm in 1970, 
called Dell, Craig, Fentress, and Benton. Four of us were partners. And in 86, we decided to make it called, it was still a law firm, but we had, the marketing arm was called ProServe because under the canons of ethics in the law firm, we couldn't do certain things like recruit or work in insurance or work in advertising or all kinds of canons of ethics that lawyers had to honor. And so we, we changed it to a business company called ProServe. And that's really, uh, I think it's because of the assassination that I ended up in sports uh, on a major basis full time. It's amazing. And, and, you know, anyone's lives, there's, there's maybe one, two or three uh, moments in each individual's life that really turns their direction in one way or the other. And, and thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And you talk about ProServe. And I mean, it, it, this got really, really big. I mean, at its peak, it had what, 16 offices around the world, 300 employees. This was a little bit big, bigger than the law offices of Donald Dell with yourself yeah. and one assistant. Um, <laughs> you represented more than what, 200 athletes and coaches, including Michael Jordan. Shout out, I'm a Chicago guy, so I'm an MJ guy. <laughs> Patrick <laughs> Ewing, uh, Steve's Patrick Ewing, Steve's Knicks. Arthur yeah. Ashe, Jimmy Connors, Gabriella Sabatini, and Pete Sampras, among others. I mean, this was a hugely successful company. Did you ever imagine it getting getting that big? Well, I never thought it would get that big. And tennis, of course, kept growing, and the NBA kept growing. I, lo- I love basketball. I actually, nobody would remember it, but I played basketball for two years at Yale. I was the freshman uh, captain of the team, and I was high scorer as a freshman. I played varsity for part of the second year, and then I got mononucleosis twice, but I love basketball. So when I started ProServe, we, we started and really centered on uh, uh, tennis to begin with, but quickly moved into basketball in the ACC. Um, I had a very good working relationship with Dean Smith. I managed with the coaches. I, I tried to get relationships with and build them with coaches. And uh, I mean, I had great players with, you know, Michael being the greatest. And of course, and we had James Worthy from Carolina, Phil Ford. Tommy Lagarde, we got every in, in really good player out of North Carolina for 14 years. I had Ralph Sampson and Wally Walker from Virginia. Uh, and so golf, be, I mean, excuse me, basketball became slight second, like the second biggest sport in our company. And then we moved into Olympic sports. And uh, at our height, really in the 80s and 90s, we, we, we had about 300 employees around the world uh, in 16 offices. And that sounds great until you have to fly to, uh, you know, Sydney, Australia or uh, Hong Kong, which I loved, or, you know, Paris and London. But you travel all the time. And uh, I can't imagine doing that now. But I ran ProServe for 27 years. Our biggest competitors really uh, was IMG and and Mark McCormick. Uh, Our staffs were very competitive with each other. He was about well, he had a thousand employees and about 26 offices. So he was a lot bigger than we were. Uh, but he and I became very good friends privately. I, I liked Mark a lot. I admired what he had done, the way he'd done it. And so he and I really worked together in some ways in the sports marketing. We had a company called ProServe Television. We ran, we did 24 uh, Olympic events uh, one year, uh, pre-events and leading into the Olympics uh, and, and uh, awful lot of sport, television. Sports television suddenly exploded with cable. And I was lucky again, because the timing of it came at the right time, but uh, it was a great experience, a lot of fun. And uh, I'm still working full-time now for a company in Europe called Sport5. It's a global company and uh, I do a more television and uh, sponsorship and marketing. I don't really do much in the talent area. I could be the grandfather of some of these players, <laughs> but they're awfully exciting. I mean, that, the women's final was as good a 
excitement as you're going to see. And I thought, I thought this year in a strange way, the women not only added to the tournament, but in a way carried the tournament. I mean, they were really, the people got excited. People thought Djokovic was going to roll over and win everything. They didn't think and realize how good Medvedev is. And don't underestimate Medvedev. He's a great player. I mean, and he really has improved his first serve. That was the key to that match. But the finals between Fernandez and Emma, she, I mean, I'll never forget that. I had somebody send me a, a note, uh, uh, Steve, from Wimbledon. And it was about some things with the chairman. And then at the bottom, it said, P.S., cheer hard for Emma <laughs> on the bottom of this note. And I thought, you know, when she won it, I hear she's taken over England. She's gone crazy over there. But can you imagine, Steve knows tennis so well. She ran through and qualified, got to the finals as a qualifier, won the tournament, and never lost a set. Never yeah. lost never, a I mean, set. Never, like never even went into a tiebreaker, Donald. Just astounding. It's like a fairy tale. It really yeah, but, is a fairy tale. Donald, again, I got to get you to go back to one other area. And I, I know David will enjoy hearing about this, but I, as the, the mid seventies was a golden period for the sport with yeah. the honors and Borg and Everett and McEnroe coming along. And in that period and beyond, you were doing a lot of commentary. And the, to me, the hot, the, the most enjoyable commentary was when you and Bud Collins would do it for PBS and do the weekends with Monday night finals across the summer at all the American tournaments and long interviews with the players. They'd come up to the booth for 15, 20 minutes, Donald, but talk about that period in the game and the enjoyment you got from the commentary because you were awfully good at it. And that was a wonderful time to be doing uh, work in television that, uh, uh, along with your representing players but i would think that this was a really a night more than a diversion but a, a very enjoyable experience for you reflect on that a bit well i think you know bud collins as you know is a great historian and friend of tennis wonderful uh, bud and i had one thing in common it's funny we, we had the same birthday uh, the two of us uh, june 17th he was exactly 10 years older than i was and he was a great friend and uh, we did something that was quite unusual, and we did it ahead of uh, really a Monday night football. A couple of years before there was any Monday night football, I was able to manage to get the six summer tournaments. The weekend after Wimbledon, leading into the U.S. Open, there's a six or seven week time period. It, it rotates sometime with the calendar because Wimbledon was always the third week in June. But I got all the tournaments. Now, you got to remember, most of these tournaments were on grass at the time. You know, there was Newport, Marion, Orange, Southampton. You know, these are all grass court turns. Then they changed the cement. They changed the clay for a while, and then they became cement, which is today's yeah. game at the Open. But uh, when we were doing that, when Bud and I were doing it, we got all six of these tournaments to agree to play the finals on Monday night. And we had Greg Harney and WGBH in uh, Boston Channel 2 with PBS. And Bud was, would, you know, he was the host. I'd do the color. And we'd end up, you know, in four-hour shows on Monday night. Now, think about that for a moment. Four hours, no advertising. If you wanted to go to the bathroom in the middle of the show, you, you'd sort of throw the mic to Bud, which he loved because he loved to talk. And then you'd run out the door, go to the run back <laughs> and hope you weren't missed. But it was another, it was, but it was really great for the sport. And uh, I remember one year, we got to the finals in Louisville, Kentucky in uh, 
late Ju July. And uh, on the Monday night, it poured rain. I mean, it rained and rained and rained. So early on, about seven, seven o'clock, seven fifteen, uh, we they canceled the whole finals, singles and doubles. And I looked at Bud and wrote him a note said, "Well, we have four hours to fill, not five minutes, and no ads." And Bud said, "That'll be great." <laughs> and he, you know, Bud had a, a phenomenal ability to create stuff and talk. Like he developed Fingers Fortescue, you know, who would be the guy on the net. We used to get. We used to get letters and calls asking questions about fingers who was just made up. He just <laughs> made a, where does he live? How old is he? Does he like tennis? You know, and Bud loved all that. And uh, Steve, you know, it was one of the great losses for tennis when we lost Bud a few years, about three or four years ago. And also I did Wimbledon on NBC for five years with Bud Collins, right, right. Dick Enberg. And some others, but Bud and I really uh, were, were I have a great, team. Great, I have great memories of that as well because I was fortunate enough, David, to often be behind the scenes as a statistician, both on PBS and then the NBC telecast that Donald's talking about. I would be with them in the booth, and Donald was always very creative because I would do the standard stats, but he would almost always come to me with something special, like, "Okay, I want you to tell me how what percentage of returns is Borg getting back into play." He'd come up with things that he wanted that he was going to make part of his commentary that were different than the normal stats. But I also, it just gave me a, this ringside seat between these two great announcers and two great figures. In well, tennis. you know, we, and, and when you think about it, you mentioned Borg, think about it for a moment. Bjorn Borg won uh, the French open on six consecutive times. And con at the same time, three weeks later, he won Wimbledon on grass five years in a mm. row. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. incredible. And no, nobody realizes how tough that is to go from clay, you know, Nadal, who's a great player, won the French 12 times, but he didn't 13. win Wimbledon four or five yeah. times in a row. No, no, and, the grass, and the grass back when Borg was playing yeah. was totally different oh, than what it's playing now, faster. even more harder. Yeah. 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 And yeah. what and you take Federer, Federer's the greatest player, and he won Wimbledon four or five times, he won Wimbledon, I think, six times maybe, but he wasn't winning the French, but once, you know, yeah. so you really – you really got to figure out Borg. I thought, Steve, the great, the greatest thing about Borg, which people don't remember, was his quickness on his feet, his yeah. footwork. Oh, yeah. That's what really made him a great player and his, and, his and ability yet, to concentrate. Oh, you're so right. And yet it's so strange looking back. I, 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 he should have won the Open, Donald. He lost to Connors on the clay at Forest Hills in a great four setter in 76. And Couple of final, couple of finals to McEnroe at Flushing Meadows, one to Jimmy as well. It's kind of sad. He, sh I felt like he should have had that on his record. And had he managed to do it one of those years, seventy-eight to eighty, when he was winning all the French and Wimbledon back to back, he then would have gone on to Australia trying to go for his Grand Slam because Australia sure. was at the end of the year. So I thought that was too bad, Donald, because to me he was he was that great a player, and I wish we'd seen it happen. Well, you know, Steve, I don't know it, the, the total accuracy of this story, but I believe it's true. When he lost the last match in the finals, uh, I thought it was to Connors that it, it, it could have been to uh, McEnroe at um, the U.S. Open. He left the court, went to the airport in his tennis clothes and got on a plane and flew home to Sweden and yeah. then retired. Yeah, you're obvious. Story, yeah. He, you're right, Don. It was McEnroe. And, and you know what? To McEnroe's credit, he he was not happy about that, Donald. He really w wished Borg had stuck or hung around. They had their great oh, yeah. 
seven and seven against each other. It could have been a rivalry that went on for five to ten more years, or at least five more. But how, then, long, how, how old was how old was Borg when he did that? He retired very young. At 25. 25. 25. Yeah. 25. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. ridiculous. You know, that's and crazy that, now. that was a great loss for the tennis, for the game. It was. It really was. Donald, I need to, um, and I don't, I don't want to cut any of these topics short because I don't know how you would, but I have to ask you um, about the, these two things. One, co-founding, being a co-founder of the ATP Tour in 1972 with Jack Kramer and Cliff Drysdale, and then your involvement with, with the Leg Mason Tournament, um, now named the City Open, as, as people know. Um, if you can kind of talk about both those, um, again, your involvement and, and what that has meant, um, the obvious impact of the sport of tennis, that'd be amazing. Well, I think two things. One, uh, with the players, by the, by, first of all, Jack Kramer was a great hero of mine, and we became very good friends. I was like a little younger brother to Jack. He was about 10 years older than I was, and uh, I admired him greatly as a player and as a businessman in the sport. And he and I became good friends over a period of time, and we were talking, we said, you know, the federations are, are still trying to control the game after 68 when it went open. There were a lot of fights going on. And, and we said, you know, everybody's fighting for things, but the players have no voice. Why don't we try and, uh, you know, decide about a player's union? And so we, I'll never forget as long as I live outside of, far, in those days, we were still playing on grass at Forest Hills for the open. And one day Jack and I were standing there and Jack had been a vice president of Southern Cal Tennis Association. And someone had come to him and said, look, if you'll go into the USTA and be a vice president in two years, you will be the president of the USTA. And that was a great honor to Jack because he had always felt that he had been uh, sort of looked down on as a pro when he was signing the top players when the amateurs were running the sport. And I spent two hours one day at the West Side Tennis Club off in a little room arguing with Jack, just the two of us why I didn't want him to take the presidency and instead start a players union. And he said, all right, it, 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 finally, you know, we, we were great friends. Uh, I love Jack Kramer. He's one of my, really my, my hero in tennis. And he said, all right, I'll, I'll try to do the player association. And I want you to be, uh, you know, my general counsel, but I'm going to work for a dollar a year. And so I worked for eight years as his counsel for a dollar of the year. <laughs> and, and Pierre Darmon ran Europe for us when we started at a dollar a year and that's just the way uh jack was and so in 72 we started the atp founded it because we thought the players needed a fair voice in the sport that was really jack's idea and cliff drysdale had a big hand in that uh, conceptually and then leading it as the first president did it damn well and then of course the first controversy you had was the pillage case at wimbledon 73 and Nicky had refused to play Davis Cup for Yugoslavia. In fact, I think he was playing an event for WCT in America, and he didn't play uh, Davis Cup. So the ITF, which was still sort of the governing body of the sport, certainly in, in Europe, went to Philippe Chatre and said, we don't want him accepting. We don't want you to accept. We're in the Federation, Yugoslavia. You're the president. We don't want you accepting him to, to the French Open. Philippe, whose greatest friend was Jack Kramer, just privately ignored like he never got the letter mm. Pillich played the French and Steve knows this Pillich was not a clay court player he's a big left-handed oh, oh. server he's a right. great server big hitter he gets to the finals of the French Open 
I mean, I don't know how he did. I don't remember the draw, but he gets and loses it in, in the finals of the French Open. Two weeks later, we're on grass in England where he's going to be a damn good player. And suddenly Wimbledon says, we're going to accept recommendation of the ITF and we're not going to accept him uh, into the tournament. And so the board of the ATP, really led by Cliff and John Newcomb and Arthur and Stan, they've spent the week of Queens trying to figure out and they decided they wouldn't play if Pillage couldn't play. And 80 people withdrew from the tournament. The, the, the tournament went ahead thinking that would never happen, made the draw with the players in the draw. And we had to call them on that Saturday. They made the draw on Friday and Saturday morning we called and said, if Pillage is not in the draw, we're not going to be able to, to do it. And here are the names. And we started pulling the names out, you know, John Newcomb, Tony Roach, Ken Roswell, 80, people? 80, yeah, people. 80 people pulled out and they then had to make the draw over. And the irony of all this was that two things happened. Number one, the fans in England, uh, the press had killed us and made us look like villains. The fans came out for the tournament in the greatest amount of volume. And rec you know, they never had record crowds like that. So the fans all supported Wimbledon without the 80 players. And as, but on the other hand, as Jack said to me one day after it was over, he said, we lost the battle, but we won the war. And what he meant was, and he explained it, he said, the players now are really united and the game is going to pay attention to us because to walk away from Wimbledon, think about it for a second. And Steve, Steve knows it so well. Stan Smith was the defending champion in 1973. He won it in 72, beating Nastasi in five sets. And yet, for the first time in the history of Wimbledon, unless there was a war or a famine or something going on, everybody played, defended their title. And Stan did not. And that was a record uh, of real character and determination to support the players union that he had helped start. And as a result of that, you know, every player of those 80 players felt very strongly about the ATP because they had, they had skin in the game. They had, they had given up something. And so to me, that was an awfully big turning point and really strengthened the ATP and immediately the, 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 play, the people, the administrators of the sport came back to Jack and I and said, look, let's do a new pros, a men's pro council and we'll have three players, three tournaments and three, quote, tennis administrators. You can elect your player representatives, but you can, Jack, you can have a hand in selection of the administrators because we wanted quality, knowledgeable people on the administrators and the tournament directors were elected by the tournaments. So we started a thing called the Men's Pro Council, which ran from about 74 until 89 when Hamilton Jordan came in the ATP and started a new tour because by then Jack and I had moved on and they had, the game had come back to coagulate and the federations were fighting with the players again and they wanted to do some things with, with the U.S. Open. And, and he decided... Who needed them? We we're going to start our the ATP is going to start their own tour. And that's what created the ATP tour today, which is not a players only union. It's a partnership between tournaments and players. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would guess the, the next logical question is 
um, the state of the union of the tennis world today, right? I mean, we don't have a commissioner of tennis. We now have the PTPA that, that Novak and Vasek are trying to and David, but, but Donald, that's what's important, what, what Donald was just saying, is that's why there's sort of an opening for what Djokovic is trying to accomplish there, because he, they want it to be a totally players group, a total players group. hundred percent agree. A hundred percent agree. And I think, yeah. and, and Donald, I'll ask you, and, um, you know, before we end with the leg Mason tournament, I'll ask you, you know, any thoughts on the, on the PTPA and what Novak and Vasek are trying to do? Well, I listened to their, their uh, press conference one night about, I guess it was about six weeks ago and, and trying to learn about it. I think Djokovic is very sincere in, in his efforts. Uh, he wants, uh, among other things, to get more direct representation for the players. He also wants to get, build prize money uh, for more people in the middle, in the lower levels. And that, get, that gets back to a, a, an important question. Uh, when Jack and I were starting it, we always asked the question for a couple of years, how many players can the sport of pro tennis support for a good living? And when we started it in the 70s, we really felt probably 100, 125. But the game has exploded since then. And so now, just for interest, I called three or four of my best friends who are player agents that deal with players every day. Steve would know all of them. And the three of four of them came back and said to me the same question. How many players can the game really afford to have a good living? And the number they came up with is 275 to 300. Now, the question is, you know, and, and this is an age old one. Today, everyone talks about his team. You know, he's got four or five helpers. He's got a coach. He's got a, a manager. He's got a, a, a physio. He's got a. Some even have, you know, people planning their meals and their diet, the dietitian. So most players can't afford that. And I don't think the game can afford all of that. But coaches are important. And so a lot of the mid-level players, let's say you're ranked 125 or 147. And you're saying, you know, how do I get from there to the top 100? I'd like to have a coach, but, but I can't really afford one. You know, Jack's answer to that, and he was a true pro. Remember, he's number one in the world. His answer to that would be play better or get a job a couple of years from now out of the sport. And he really felt that the game has gotten bigger and bigger now. You know, there are 900 players, I think, on the ATP computer ranking. And so to support, well, 300 seems to me reasonable. And that's really what Djokovic is all about, I think. And what I've tried to convey, and I've, I've written this a couple of times, I wrote an article in Sports Illustrated about a week ago saying, I hope rather than have a player's union, the PTPA, as it's called, rather than trying to dilute or weaken the strength of the ATP Tour, because there's a lot of very good things about the ATP Tour. Problem is tournaments, players have different interests. In a partnership, it's very hard. The players want more prize money and less tournaments. The tournaments want just the, the, the result. They want you know, better players committed and maybe less, less events around the world so there's a conflict there but uh i'm hoping that and i think Djokovic is very intelligent very smart and i've suggested in writing that you know build your association make it strong but sit down and with the tour board leaders the people managing it and come up with some real reforms because you can make it a lot better and bigger because remember the tour board now has been going on for 30 years or you know 
it's another world. And uh, they have uh, uh, about 120 employees. And I don't know what the total uh, budget is. Uh, the, the overhead is, is quite substantial. So it's a business. And they're very successful in television revenue and endo- endorsements. So you're not going to get rid of them, but find a way the two parties can strengthen what the players really want, which is equal and full representation and better playing conditions. It's that simple. It's very hard to do. It's easy to describe it. Very hard to do. Yeah, well said. No, I was curious to hear your thoughts, and I appreciate you adding your insight to it. Um, we will end uh, with with the discussion on Leg Mason because it was such it's such a successful tournament. Again, it's now I think it was Leg Mason from 1994 to 2011. Now it's named the City Open. Um, you had such huge involvement in that. I want to end the conversation with it. Talk a little bit about um, how that tournament came about and what that what that tournament means to you. Well, we were very lucky uh, in Washington. Uh, Johnny Harris and I, Johnny was a great friend of mine, was a very good player in uh, junior and men's tennis, played at Michigan. He and I started a tournament in 68, excuse me, in 69. And really, Arthur had a big hand in that. Arthur Ashe, we were running the Davis Cup, and, he, and we were driving around Washington one time in 1968 after a, a clinic or tennis uh, exhibition downtown. And Arthur said, you know, I'd really, well, why don't we try to start a tournament in Washington? But I'd really like you to put it into a facility where it's totally integrated or where it's naturally integrated and not in a country club. Well, the best facility for that was 16th and Kennedy, which is a public park. And so Arthur said, if you'll start a tournament there, I'll play it. And he played it 10 years in a row. So he honored his commitment. And, and so Johnny and I, started a tournament in 69 and we ran it 69, 70 and 71. And it was a, on the tour uh, on the, uh, you know, uh, what became the ATP tour it was a tournament even before that. And we were the first ones in 69, we put up $25,000 in prize money ahead of the grass court tournaments and sort of forced them to come up with 25,000 each week leading to the open. We were the first one after Wimbledon and, uh, in 70, 1972, uh, Johnny and I decided to give the sanction and the date of the tournament to the Washington Tennis and Education Foundation, WTEF in Washington. And so we transferred everything to them and they became the owner of the tournament. We ran the tournament together for them for the next uh, 27 years. And then Johnny uh, decided to stop out. He said he had enough of doing it. And I, like an idiot, stayed on. And uh, I, I, ran it until night until 2018 i ran it actually for 50 years with the profits of the event going to the wtef and then in 2019 we sold the tournament to uh, mark ein uh, an entrepreneur in washington uh, who really wanted to build the term i always felt at some point the game had exploded and gotten so big so popular so much money all over the world that a foundation we were the only foundation that owned a pro tournament event on the tour and I felt unless they were willing to invest a lot of money and create some new things, build a better stadium things, that they couldn't compete with the world tour. So they would be better to sell it to somebody who wanted to do that. And Mark has spent a lot of money in Washington in, in 2019. And then again, this year, he couldn't play in 2020 because of the, the pandemic. But he's done a lot of things to, to build this, the event, make it better. And uh, so I think I feel very good about the fact that the WTF has benefited all those years 
Uh, I one of the reasons we did it was that they had funded me when I was on the tour as a junior when I was trying to play the tour at 16, 17, and 18. They had a patrons group that evolved into the WTEF later, and they had they had given my father four hundred dollars a couple summers in a row to let me play junior tournaments. And I never knew that until after I graduated from Yale, my father then told me about it. So I always wanted to give something back to them. I never dreamed that it would become uh, such a big event uh, worldwide as it has become because the television has been enormous. ATP tour has done a great job with television. Uh, and it's now, you know, as I explained to the Washington post every year, this isn't a local or regional event. This is an international event. You know, we're in 125 countries all over the, all over the world. So I feel very good about that. I feel that it's in good hands uh, with Mark Ein, and uh, I think the WTF is the beneficiary. So uh, in this case, all's well that ends well. Donald, this was a uh, uh, tennis owes you a huge, huge thank you for not only what you've done, but what you've continued, uh, what you continue to do, and um, your experiences have been amazing. And, and both Steve and I thank you for you know spending your evening and. And walking us through some of them and talking us uh, talking to us about it. Thank you. Um, you are an amazing individual, and like I said, the the, the sport of tennis owes you a uh, a big big thank you. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.